0: Ray Romano, a stand-up comedian from Queens, New York, who became the star of one of television's best love shows.
1: This was our thing. This was our sitcom TV legacy.
0: The Everybody Loves Raymond actor shares the last-minute decision that put him on the map. The story I'm about to tell you probably has no validity, but in my head it does. And the heartbreak of saying goodbye after nine seasons. After a couple months, wasn't that much fun it wasn't no and I kind of crashed 10 years had passed since the Raymond finale when we sat down with Romano in 2015 but he was as busy as ever acting writing producing and golfing during our chat he shared embarrassing tales from the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am at
1: the time I was devastated but now I, I, I it's funny now
0: and harsh lessons from legendary instructor Hank Haney one shot that I hit Hank Haney said
1: That's the worst shot I've ever seen.
0: (laughs) All that's coming up on the In Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to start off by talking about some of your early days before you made it big in show business, when you were kind of young and hustling, had a variety of different jobs (laughs) and and happy. There you go. Yeah. Um, What do you remember from being held at gunpoint when you were a gas station? Two times.
1: Twice. Twice, yeah. I was working at a gas station by my house in Forest Hills, Queens and uh, this, you know, this is back in the day where you didn't pump your own gas. I was a gas jockey, I guess, whatever you call it. And a guy came in, young kid, looked a little like you and I'm not even saying that to be funny. (laughs) Just Just an upstanding looking young man and I was young. And he actually used the payphone. And do you remember? What, you know what a payphone is? We used I, to have these things. yeah. Yeah. And it was the middle of the day, and it was me and another worker. Um, and he just kept pretending that ah, shit, and that it was uh, busy. The line was busy. And we kept running out, pumping and pumping, and putting cash in our pockets and this and that. And then we we just started talking with him. And he was a nice guy, and we were joking with him, everything. And he just ah, 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 you mind if I yeah, go ahead, boom, and he'd hang up. And then, you know, he was waiting for a lull in the traffic and the cars coming in. And when the lull hit, just totally shocked us because never would have suspected it. He just pulled the gun out and said, guys, and we turned around and he goes, he goes, and he said, right away, he says, I like you guys. Don't make me do anything. I go, well, I go, we like you too, you know. <laughs> um, and he, yeah, he made us go in the garage and lay down and he took the, you know, he knew we had money in our pockets, he took it. And we had change, like bills in a drawer, and he took that, and he took off. And then about, literally about 90 seconds later, a cop car came by and ran out. We got in the car, went looking, and we never found him. And the second time was the same gas station. Now, this was at night, late at night, and where we had a sign saying we don't give uh, change after 10 o'clock. And a car pulled up, and there was one gentleman in front, one gentleman in the back. And I should have suspected something then, that, you know, why are they driving that way? And the guy in the front said, I want $3 of gas. I only got 10 Can you give me change? I said, and I, I wasn't supposed to, but I said, yeah, I'll give you change. So he knew I had money on me. Yeah. So I was pumping the gas, and then from the back, I just heard, yo. Uh, and as soon as I heard yo, I just said, oh, what have I done? <laughs> you know, yeah. And I turned, and... He had the guy had a gun. He's pointing right at my stomach, and he said, "Empty your pockets." And I had a wad of money, but it was all singles. But he just saw the wad of money, and I just he goes, "Throw that in here." And I just threw it in. So they were they thought they hit the jackpot. It was really like forty dollars in singles, you know. And then he said, and then he said, you, "You empty your pockets." And I had my wallet, and I took my wallet out, and and he goes, "Throw that in here too." And look, I was scared. I was not a hero. I wasn't, you know, uh, I'm, I was as scared as I could be, but I didn't want to have to get a new license. I don't wanna to go to the Motor Vehicle Bureau. <laughs> and I said, and I, so I showed him, it had, it had one single in it. I go, can I just give you the money? You know, and, and I keep this? And the guy, to his credit, he took the dollar, he goes, you keep it. And he let me keep the dollar and he drove off. And those were my two times uh, ever being held up. And then my mother and my father told me, you can't work there anymore.
0: So that was the end of your time? As Pretty a much. I think, antenna. you know,
1: maybe I lasted another couple of weeks there. But uh, I said, yeah, let's. You know, it's not worth it, you know.
0: Hey, explain why you went under the alias uh, Jackie Roberts your first night doing stand-up.
1: Jackie Roberts was uh, when the first time I did stand-up, I went to the Improv on 44th and 9th Avenue, which doesn't exist anymore, but was the first club ever in the country. And they had audition night on Sundays, the first Sunday of every month, and I've learned that, you know, I called up and found out the procedure was you go down at noon in the afternoon, you pull a name, all the possible addition, the potential addition is, that want to... Chance, come in and pull a name out of a hat. We give out 20 spots. They give out 20 uh, slots to perform that night. There's about 40 people there, 50 maybe. So I brought somebody with me, and, and the only one I could come was this, was this girl that I was working with at the time. I was working at the bank at the time. And I told her, I go, because once you pull the name out, if you, if you have a blank, you're you not going on. If you have a number, that's when you're going on. I said, if you get the number, and I had to think of an androgynous name, you know, because the guy's going to ask you your name and write it down. And then that night I'll just go on. So I said, "Jackie Roberts." It sounds it could be a guy, it could be a Sure enough, she she pulled the number. She, he said your name, Jackie Roberts. So I went on that night as Jackie Roberts for Silver Friedman, who was the owner of the club. And and I was scared of Silver, you know. She's a lovely woman, but I was scared of her. Um, and I did well enough to get what they call a callback, where they say you can come back next month. She tells you next month, you, you can have a callback. You don't have to pull a number. You, you, I'll, you'll be on the list. And I wasn't about to tell her, I'm, I really tricked you guys, I'm not Jackie. So I, for the first like three or four months, I was Jackie Roberts <laughs> there. Yeah, and then I finally had to tell her, uh, I was just trying something out. I'm not, uh, I'm gonna go with my real name. Seymour Rankowitz.
0: I <laughs> um, so when you were kind of mean, for a while, struggling as a comic, Saturday nights, you would drive all over town in New York, show to show to show, yes. in an effort to like make 300 bucks. And I was talking to your wife the other day, who's great and uh, has lots of stories, um, and she's like, you know, God bless him, make the 300 bucks, but then I'd be furious with him because he'd get a $100 ticket the same night.
1: Well, I lived in Queens and all the work was, all the clubs were in Manhattan. And I I just drove, you know, I wasn't a subway guy, too claustrophobic for that. Um, And I had to, yeah, once I became a regular at the clubs on a Friday or Saturday night, you had to, that's where you made your money. If you didn't go out on the road, you had to hustle and make as much, you know, and the clubs would pay $50 for a spot, some would pay 60. So Friday i do the, the 8 o'clock at the cellar downtown, the, the 8.40, you know, they, they had three shows, an 8 o'clock show, a 10 o'clock show, a 12 o'clock show. So I would do the 8.15 at the cellar, the, the 8.45 at stand-up New York, uptown, the 9.15 at the comic strip, and then come back for the second show here. And i pop, 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 pop. And you can't find a spot. You got to do your, you know, you got to just park. You know, there were many times I was just by the hydrant and crossing my fingers. And uh, I never got towed. I got broke, I got smashed, window smashed. Uh, But yeah, that was, you know, part of the course was make 300 and pay $100 tickets and uh, hide the rest from your wife. It's a different
0: interview. Uh, 1991, (laughs) you do Johnny Carson. I do. How how true is it that you almost had a panic attack at some point?
1: Uh, That's very true. I was, it's 91 November 15th and I was in the hotel with Rory with my manager and I was in the shower not he wasn't with me you waited outside right yeah Um, and I remember because now it's getting close and I remember not being able to feel my arm in the shower, you know, I was like, because I'm just so consumed by I'm going, I'm about to go on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And I go, "Holy shit, I'm like, how am I gonna make it? I'm still like two hours away from this. And then I, we got in the car, the limo, that was taking us there to The Tonight Show, and I was on the verge of just, you know, having a full-blown panic attack or or whatever
0: that is. And how are you feeling?
1: Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm numb in spots, I'm, it's surreal, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that I'm going to go up there and freeze, heart's going a little, heart's going fast, and we got about a block away from the hotel and I realized I left my notes in the room, so he, so he goes, let me go around, I go, no, 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 let me just get out, and I get out and I ran full steam, you know, because we were cutting it close with time, To the hotel, up, down, ran full steam back. And that kind of saved me. Because whatever that did, that, you know, the energy that I expelled was good enough to calm me down a little. I still don't remember the set. You know, you're still kind of in your own world. But I didn't freeze. Otherwise, if I don't run back and forth, I'm here, you're there. And the whole world is crazy you really you <laughs> really
0: think that would have i mean you would have no but i do a, have a, a story
1: well i don't know what would have happened on that but you know i don't know that that would have made or make or break my career because uh you know the thing that it changed my life doing the tonight show just as a, as a performer uh, you know reaching the mountaintop but what changed my my career was doing letterman and I, my theory is, and I, mean, I know I'm jumping ahead. Well, the, and that's
0: what you always wanted to do, though, right? You'd done Carson, you'd done The Tonight Show a couple times, but Letterman yeah. was... Yeah, I only did The Tonight Show once. Okay. I did, oh, I did it once or with Johnny, did, and, and then, I did it twice with right, Jay. Right,
1: right. Um and then, and then Johnny left, and Dave was the guy. Yeah. And I, and I was also 11 years doing stand-up at that time, so it was also the idea of, because they were giving shows to comics. They were giving, you know, a lot of comics were getting development deals. You know, Roseanne got a show, Tim Allen got a show, Brett Butler got a show, you know, Seinfeld of course. Um, is that ever going to be even something? That's not why I'm in the business. I love doing standup, but you know, I'm 37 years old now. What's the next step? I got three kids, but what's the next thing? And would I, well, am I going to get a show? Am I going to get a, am I going to get that chance? Maybe I've reached as far as okay. I'm going to get. And then Letterman came, the, 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 the opportunity to do Letterman.
0: And you were bumped the first two times, I think. That's right. right.
1: I was bumped on the way there. Somebody went long. So I was bumped on the, on the ride there. On the, I think on the bridge, on the, on the 59th Street Bridge, <laughs> I was bumped. But anyway, um, so then when we did it, um, I, I remember Mel Gibson was on the show. He was the first guest. And Dave did a bit. And I'm making a lot out of this when the, the, what I'm, the story I'm about to tell you probably has no validity, but in my head it does. Dave did a bit where he cut people's pants for the spring. He goes, I'm going to summarize your pants. And he took someone from the audience and he cut their pants and, and you know, pulled their legs out. And now they had shorts and the crowd went crazy. And then he did Paul Schaefer's pants. He summarized Paul Schaefer's pants. And then he did his own pants. He goes, well, I'm, I'm not a good sport from anything. I'm not. He does his own pants. So they all have, Mel Gibson comes out, he cuts Mel Gibson's pants into shorts. So I'm backstage, and I'm first time on Letterman, nobody knows me, and one of the producers comes over with a scissor. And I'm, start, I'm starting to think, what do I do? He, and he goes, you gotta cut your pants. You have to cut your pants. And we had the scissors, I go, really? You think, yeah. And we were about to cut them, and I stopped and I said, you know what? He's going to introduce an unknown comic. You've never seen it. You're going to see an unknown young guy walk out on stage. I just started thinking, if I come out without pants, all of a sudden I'm, there's an air of I'm one of the guys I'm, I'm, I'm already in. I'm already part of the joke. I'm already with you guys. So I decided not to cut. I go, you know what? I'm not going to cut my pants. And again, i make making more of this. And I went out and I had… You know, I'm hard on myself, but I had one of the best TV spots I've, I've ever done. And that led to Dave calling me and signing me to a development deal. And I think, had I cut my pants, I'm delivering your futon. <laughs> do, you re- I mean, do you really think that would have been that? I do in my—there okay. is a part of me that thinks, who knows if the dynamic is different. If I go out without my shorts— The audience, ah, ha, ha, but they don't, you know, and you know, you get off to a bad start and you never know. Who knows? Maybe Dave looks at me different. Maybe, maybe somebody, you know, I told that story to Dave and he said, I'm sure it would have been fine. (laughs) And and it
0: was, I think, two weeks after that appearance that you get a call at your home on a Saturday afternoon saying they wanted to develop the sitcom around you. What about your final appearance on Letterman made it so emotional for you?
1: Well, because what made it emotional was that's where my life changed i mean first of all it was just to get on the show and be and 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 you know have dave give me the accolades he did and all that is good enough but then f- for what happened after that i mean my life changed my my children's life my family my everybody's everything changed for me so uh, and he was like a hero of mine so and, and over the course of the years, then it's 20 years later, I've been on the show over 35 times, you know, and, and it was always my favorite thing to do. And every year I would write down stuff in the back of my book whenever I thought of something funny. i go, that's good for Letterman, that's good for Letterman, you know, because I always had to have like 15 minutes of new stuff every time I went. So when it was ending, it was just the show's over. I look back at that time, there's this, such a magic to it. You know, my kid's are little and I'm out there, tr- tr- you know, trying to make it in the business. And, and this was the moment. If I have to pick one moment, this was the moment.
0: So that appearance what what leads to uh, Everybody Loves Raymond in the first season yeah. of Raymond. I think you start in like 77th in ratings. You eventually become the most watched show on television. But I think a turnaround like that's pretty much... Unheard of. That first season, though, the ratings were lousy. Yeah. Critics liked it, but ratings weren't great. CBS stuck with it. You were at a crappy time period, Friday nights. Right. When CBS moves it to kind of the coveted Monday night time period, to what extent is that kind of do or die for you guys? As oh, it was do
1: or die. It was absolutely do or die. The, the, he he told us it was do or die.
0: That being less Moonves, yes. The CBS said
1: because we were we were on Friday nights. And we, we were in like, a, you were being generous, 77th. We were in like a hundredth and something place. I used to say in my act, uh, we got we got Moesha right on our ass. There was a show called Moesha, which was right behind us. Um, but um, Friday was a bad you night, know, so nobody was really watching. And the critics were giving us some love. So he was kind of torn, Les Moonves, from canceling us because... He'd get some heat from the critics or whatever. And, and he knew, he kind of was, had faith in the show also. And,
0: and you think it was close, though.
1: He told, he told not Phil Rosenthal, he said the last six weeks of the first season, he said, we're going to put you on 9.30, I think it was 9.30 on Monday, after, 8.30 after Cosby. Cosby's second run was, was gone. And that was a top 10 show that year. He said, we're going to put you on after that. Because if if you don't perform in that slot, he goes, there's pretty much nothing I can do. So the pressure was on, it was kind of there. And we, I think in the first first week, Cosby came in like 14th place and we came in 12th. We went up a tick on the first night. And you know, you still don't know if, are they gonna come back? And, and they came back and we stayed on Mondays for the rest of our run, we stayed.
0: That first season, your family was living in New York oh, yeah. still. You were in a crappy little apartment in L.A. I think you were commuting back every three weeks. Yes. Um, when did it get to the point, or what made you realize it got to the point where the show's going to make it? Where you can, you know, bring the family and...
1: Well, I mean, it was, it was that Monday trial. Okay. I, I will say this, though. It was... I remember the episode... Because you have doubts the whole way. You don't know. Was, you're just getting to know the actors, and, the, and you're just getting to know your character, and, they can, and the audience doesn't know your character. You know, the audiences that would come in, they literally would pay, this sounds like a joke, but they would pay senior citizen homes and drug rehab places to bring people in. Yes. For real. Yes, for real. <laughs> um <laughs> So they would fill our audiences. I mean, it wasn't full with them, but 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 just to right. fill half of it. They don't know when Doris Roberts walks in a room, that she's gonna if she overhears her and say, oh my God, that's gonna cause. Because they don't know the dynamics of the family, the characters. They got to get to know them. So it was a little rough, you know, in front of these in front of these crowds. Um, we believed in the material and all that, but but you weren't getting any feedback from the audience that you should until about, you know, then it aired, and then. Uh, you know, maybe 12, 15 episodes in or 12, 10 episodes. Some some people are in that audience now who have seen the show and and know a little bit. But it was about episodes, I I forget the number of the episode, I remember the episode where because you have your doubts, you don't know. And then there was one episode, it was called Standard Deviation, that was the name of the episode. And it was so fun to do and it was so cool and where I started to think, there's a there's a chemistry here between the characters, that's really good. And it's really unique and and it's real. And yeah, we're doing a sitcom and the jokes are broad sometimes and all. But but there's a realness to it and there's uh, there's some there's a you know heart to it too. Um, but that doesn't mean you're going to stick around, you know. And it wasn't until the Monday, you know, my wife wasn't gonna move the kids out for that but then when we got picked up after the after those six episodes on the 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 last six and we got picked up for the fun the next year you know I had twin two-year-old boys maybe then and a four-year-old girl and my wife was was handling that herself and we got picked up and it was next year she said this bull I'm coming out there
0: (laughs) (laughs) how much are you able to have a life when the productions going on those nine seasons.
1: Oh yeah, no. <laughs> it was, I mean, I always say that I felt like I was in a in a in a bubble because I was. I I I was in probably at least ninety five percent of every scene of every show. I was in. I, I, there were very rarely where I was not in two scenes in an episode. So I was constantly on the floor acting. But then, when I wasn't, I was in the writers' room. You know, as soon as I was done acting, I would run to the writers' room and sit with the guys. And then, editing—editing wasn't as difficult as some, but it was part of it. Um, So it was all-consuming. And when it ended, it felt like uh, like this submarine came up, and I came out, and I was like, I live in California now. My Wait a minute! My kids are 12. Uh, she still won't have sex with me. What's going on? Um, but in the beginning, it was uh, kind of fun to to have the time and all that. And then after a couple months, wasn't that much fun. It wasn't. No. And I kind of crashed. About three months, you know, I was seeing a, I was seeing a therapist. You know, my whole life I've been seeing a therapist. And and when when the show was ending, when it was a, when it was about to end, he said. You want to start coming twice a week? And I said, No, I, I, I've run out of things to say now, you know. But within the three months, I was going. To, I was seeing him twice a week because it was it was it's not easy. Yeah.
0: What was not easy about it?
1: Just you know, you you throw everything in for nine years, and all of a sudden, there's this lull and this you know, if it's it, it the show became part of who I was, and then all of a sudden you got to figure out who you are again, you know, and I always, you know, one thing I'm, I'm, I thank God is, you know, my family is the most important, my kids are the most important thing to me. But I, but I will admit, I am also, you know, what makes me happy is, is, is creating and doing and, and, and doing something, and performing in some sense. And one thing I can always do, stand up, you know, an actor... I I, I sometimes think the actors really have it hard who maybe reach an age where they're not getting work or or something ends. And, you know, they're looking for that next thing. I always have that creative outlet of of stand-up. But it took a while to to get my feet again after the show ended, you know?
0: So you and executive producer Phil Rosenthal decide— To end the show after nine seasons, two hundred and ten episodes, twelve Emmys, you had the financial incentive to continue. I mean, you're making almost two million bucks an episode on top of whatever you get (laughs) on top of whatever (laughs) you get, you know, on the back end and syndication. So, I mean, how difficult was that decision for you in terms of when to end the show?
1: Well, it was difficult for for some of those reasons. It wasn't difficult creatively because to be honest to be totally honest Phil and I wanted to end it in the eighth season oh you did yes after the eighth season Um, I mean to be to be honest you know we had thought at that time the last thing we want to do is overstay overstay and, and and feel like we're we're on a decline and then we pull out you know you don't want to be the guy who who, who keeps playing baseball, and he because and he, he can hit six homers a year instead of thirty-five. And we felt we were we were still at our peak uh, that way, but we could see that we were running out of ideas. That sometimes we were repeating, we were stealing from ourselves a little bit. And we and for Phil and I, and again, it's easy for us. We Phil Phil has a big percentage of the show. I had a smaller percentage, but you know we financially wasn't a motivator it wasn't we weren't motivated by for financial reasons it was all about this was our thing this was our our baby and you know this was our sitcom tv legacy and we want to protect it and go out you know with dignity and you know again but you also have to take into account the, the other actors and they're they're reaching a point where they're making substantial money, and, and, and they, they have families, and this and that, and, 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 and you want to be fair, but not at the expense of the show. So we thought, and Phil, Phil came up with this, he goes, let's see how many new, fresh ideas we can get for season nine. Let's, have a, let's sit with the writers, and if we can come up with eight, if we can come up with eight ideas that we're proud of, that we, that we know are new, then, then we can probably do 16. we come up with eight, we'll come up with 16. So that's what we did. We came up with eight that we thought, uh, you know, were just as good as any of them. And so we told the network, we'll do 16. We only did 16 in the season nine. But, but, you know, we, I, I don't think Phil and I regret one second leaving at at that point. Yeah.
0: I I want to take you back to when uh, you were growing up. Um, I don't know if you remember this story, but the seventh grade dance. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I don't know. Sorry, I I know I may I I know I wasn't I wasn't Casanova. I know that. Why what do you what do you keep going. Oh, the, you
0: just um you know, found like the one of the most attractive girls in school to Who are Oh 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 yeah. I think I know what you're
1: talking about. I asked this girl who was I, I look I know I wasn't one of the cool kids in the in the school. I wasn't the, the super nerd kid, but I was somewhere, I was more on that side than the cool Mm -hmm. side, that's for sure. And I remember asking a girl to dance and slow, slow dance in seventh grade, you know, And when you're holding. And this is going to be sad, this is going to be pathetic. But I remember her shaking and thinking, I wonder if she's nervous. And then in reality I felt like she was looking at her friends and laughing because she's dancing with the goofball. (laughs) <laughs> this is oprah all of a sudden
0: <laughs> but um i mean funny now but yeah kind of devastating yeah right? it was
1: it was a little a little devastating when i realized holy shit, he's laughing at me yeah Still had an erection.
0: Oh, we can't put that in. No, we can put that in. <laughs> oh god. Um, so you flunked science. You flunked Spanish. You flunked social studies. You're talking high about school. high? Are you about high school? High school yeah. uh, you finally graduated from your third high school um, after seven years in two colleges. You drop out of college. What was going on? Yeah, in, I went in three in high period. schools,
1: two colleges. Right. Just you know. I wish it was something. Uh, uh, Sexy and interesting, it was, it was just being a slack off, just being a guy who, who didn't know what he wanted to do. Just
0: irresponsible and immature. In the back of your head, did you always know you were gonna make it?
1: No, but I knew I wanted, I knew I was attracted to show business. I knew I was attracted to performing. You know, when we were, when, we, when I was 15 maybe, I, I did a church play and I was the lead of of some silly comedy based on the uh, the comic strip, The Wizard of Id. I don't know if you're with Hagger or Hagger the Horrible one of those. and and I did and and I got this was like really my first taste of being on stage and getting laughs. And then, when we were seventeen, when when Saturday Night Live came out, we would stay home on a Saturday night to watch it. You know, Saturday was the party night, and we, at that we, we were so into this show. So we put on a sketch comedy show, me and, me and uh, six guys from the neighborhood. And we, we, the church used to have a teen club every Sunday night. So we said one of those Sunday nights, we're gonna put on a show for these guys and we're gonna, it's gonna be a, a no talent show. And we called ourselves No Talent Incorporated. And we wrote the sketches, did the thing. And we did, I think we did about three of those. And there's still, there's still an eight track recording of them And that was another taste of performing. And so then when I went to college, and it it was exhilarating. And then when I went to college, I started, I took a, a drama class, this and that, and we put on, and the plays I would pick would be, you know, Neil Simon plays, comedies, whatever. I was attracted to performing and I was attracted to comedy. Didn't really know that stand up would be the root, you know, I just knew, I just felt like, I, 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 something, Something's gonna happen there. I'm gonna do something in that area. But I wasn't like this driven guy who sat at home and said, I don't need math and science because I'm gonna be on right. Broadway.
0: <laughs> a little later on, but uh, well before Raymond, uh, Joanna Beckson's acting class. Yes. Uh, you give a monologue to an empty chair before a live audience. Describe the setting and explain what you talked about.
1: <laughs> I already cried once. Um, Joanna Beckson is this wonderful uh, woman who teaches in acting, I think she still does, but back then she, and she special, not specialized, but she would give discounts to stand-up comedians who wanted to take acting and we all, and this is when I was starting in stand-up and all of us kind of thought, you know, it's always good, you know, this is maybe TV. This was way early. And a couple of us signed up for her class and she she one of these yeah, one of the things she had to do was for us to write our own monologues and then she put on a little recital and they they put it on in like a a a walk up in Manhattan, an actual apartment where we would go room to room. The people, the audience would follow you room to room. And in this room, Susie put on her monologue with, with this and that. And in this room and then I put on my monologue. And my monologue was, eh, I don't want to sound sappy and schmaltzy, but it was a conversation with my father. It was like I was having a conversation with my father. So it was funny. It was talking about all the, my father thought he was a, a, a very dry comedian and, and he, would put, he would have these jokes that nobody would laugh at except me and everybody else, my wife, would be pissed off at him. But he also was very, it was, he, he was a guy, this sounds like Cliche, but never said I love you, never couldn't be demonstrative. You know, just he, he had a rough time growing up. I don't, you know, I don't hold this against him. That's just who he was. Um, and, you know, that this is like a common denominator with, with stand up comedy, with performers in general. There's always some negligent parent, <laughs> I guess, which I guess you can thank God. If there'd be no entertainment. We'd all have to join bowling leagues. Yeah, right. Um, but so I had my I had it out with him i kind of I kind of just addressed that in this acting monologue of what'd you say? oh jeez, what did I say? hmm I think I remember saying, I remember telling him um, I had been on an audition like a, a, a maybe a month before in real life and one of the they, they asked you these candid questions and one of them was who's your hero? Who would you say is your hero? And a lot of guys were you know John F. Kennedy, Martin Luther King and the first thing that popped in my head was my father. And I remember in this monologue telling my father that I, I said you were my hero and I couldn't figure out why and it just dawned on me because I, that's who I want you to be. I want you to be my hero. Oh. And, uh, cut all this! <laughs> and and it got, yeah, it got a little, I mean,
0: yeah, it got a little verklempt, as they say. Um, you were really proud of how you did in that performance. So I don't know if I was, was proud.
1: I got good feedback. As I, was I,
0: everybody that was there. I didn't throw the know. mic down and right. say,
1: follow that, next lady. <laughs> but... Um, i got, I got good feedback it was probably the first time any of any of my friends or my acting coach or teacher or had seen me do something with a little a little gravitas to it you know it was my first venture into that.
0: How do you think his lack of affection when you were growing up impacted you
1: well like I say I don't know the is that is that why you become a performer I don't know i, I you know I, I can't say that I'm a, I'm a, I do this because, but I, I always joke. I do, I do have that joke. If my father hugged me once, I'd be an accountant right now. I wouldn't need to do any of this. You know, <laughs> one hug would would have been all it would take. But I do try to do. You know, I, I I do find myself trying very hard to be affectionate myself with my kids and my and it's not easy. It's not. It's not. You know, from. From my background and all, it, it, it's, I do it, but it doesn't come easy. I noticed that.
0: Um, you grew up in Queens. Uh, one of your brothers was a cop. Another one of your brothers was a teacher. You met your wife uh, when you were both working at the, the bank. Savings back. Yes. Is, is it true that uh, you didn't ask her out until after you left the bank because you were concerned that if she said no, you yeah. didn't want to have to see her every day? Well, what she didn't tell you was, uh, she, 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 she wasn't the first, first girl I asked Yeah, She told out me there. that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: Um, there was less pressure because I could have sworn it was going to be no.
0: You thought so? You
1: thought you'd? Well, be I don't for know. Three? I mean, my batting average wasn't that good, so who knows? You but, said uh, she took a gamble on you. What she took a gamble. Time? I used to. I mean, I was twenty. I lived at home till I was twenty-nine. Okay, but she already started dating me. She thought Damien was twenty six, but I was riding my bike i was twenty five riding my bike to the bank and pulling it in Ding, ding ding ding, ding, ding with my little bell and and being a bank teller, you'd ride and, fifteen
0: minutes late on your bike oh uh, yes, everybody and I live a mile, at the I live bank the, had to ride fifteen minutes I live early. three quarters of a okay. mile
1: away, and I would be late and 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 yeah i i I don't know that um i was uh, a list material you know as far as potential boyfriend slash husband but she wasn't materialistic then <laughs> <laughs> no she um you know a well, deserved perk
0: though now of having
1: yes deserved perk right. i tell her, like i always tell her whenever she and this is uh, this is very old i've said this many times but whenever she complains about Jokes I do whatever I I tell her to go cry in a bag of money. <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> I was watching the 95 uh, miles there Documentary ago. and yeah. there was one show you tell some joke I think it was like an oral sex joke or something like that and yeah. everybody in the audience laughs um, Except I think you find out at some point there's some executive in the audience who didn't think it was funny And yeah. that bothered you the rest <laughs> of the night. How, how yeah. much does stuff like that get to you?
1: well It does, but, you know, now I've been beaten over the head enough. And again, again, I'm not complaining. I had a show called Everybody Loves Raymond. So, but anytime you have a show like that, people are going to come at you to say, well, we don't love you, you know? Um, So I've been, I've got my negative stuff. And yeah, it's, I can't say it doesn't bother me. It does. And and I never learned my lesson. I, I... I look at like I'll go online and like I, the last show I did Parenthood, I used to go online after every episode and see you know because I you know my character was was fighting for Lauren Graham with Jason Ritter who's 30 years younger than me, and I used to go online and see the people what she want and I used to you know and we used to be back and forth. They were in in his camp or my camp, and I would read it. And then I would call my assistant up and say, D- "Did you read this?" And she's like, "What are you doing? Why are you on those sites?" <laughs> yeah. So I've learned my lesson, not to try not to. But even every time I think I've learned my lesson and I'm better, something will come up and someone will say something, and it'll it'll throw me.
0: <laughs> Your wife says uh, you're you get insecure with that stuff.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I'm I'm. I, I I can't really I do bother her with it, but she believes in tough love, and by that I mean telling me to shut up, <laughs> um, because she knows that's the only thing. At least though, she'll be like, "Oh, get over it! It's not—it's stupid people online and blah blah blah." And, um, yeah, I'm very insecure. Uh, uh, it doesn't change. It doesn't change with. I don't think it changes with success, it's just a different, well, the joke I always used to tell was, you know, before I used to think my cab driver hates me and now I think my limo driver hates me. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just relative, you know? You uh, get better at it. You get better at it because you know, regardless of how many people say negative things, you know that you did good work and you know it's successful. You're always, you know, you, you finally realize you're always going to get that no matter who, I don't care who's out there. I don't care how lovable they are. Tom Hanks gets negative reviews, you know? Everybody does. Some people get it more, but...
0: (laughs) Did you really avoid going on stage for two years? Like, after you bombed, I think it was the third time you did stand-up?
1: Yeah, I I quit twice uh, in the beginning. I quit once for two years, and then I quit for a year. Um, The first time was... But, like, quit, quit. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Well, I wasn't really... When I say quit, it's not like I was doing it for a living. I was attempting... Mm -hmm. Stand up. Um the first the first time ever, you know, did well, did well the second night, did well maybe the third night, and started thinking, This is easy, this is I can do this. And then the fourth night bombed a horrible death, no different than any other comic. But it was my first taste at what it's like with flop sweat and not know how to handle they didn't laugh or not yeah.
0: If something happens in real life that you find funny and can potentially use in your act, what will you do from that point?
1: If something happens, like most recently, and this is exactly how it happened, my son just got his driver's license, 16 years old, and he ran out of gas on the 101, which is a five-lane highway, called us up and said, as, as casual as I'm saying right now. Yeah, I'm at a gas. I said, what are you, uh, where are you? And even more casual. I'm on the 101. And of course I said, so you must be on the side. Nope, middle lane. This is word for word. And Then this is exactly the exchange we had. Because I'm panicking. Well, what's the traffic like? Well, behind me it's bad, but it's moving in front of me. I swear to you he said that word for word I said, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. So I wrote it all down and I go, that's, uh, you can't get better than that. So I wrote it down and I took it to, the next time I was at the Hermosa Beach Comedy Magic Club and on the drive there with my buddy Tom who was at 95 Miles To Go, we, we, we drove to Hermosa Beach. I started reading it out loud and I started, and of course then where can I go next? What's next? You know. And I started thinking, you know, and so on the way, I, by the time I got to Hermosa Beach Comedy Club, I had came up with the idea that my wife would probably defend him and say, and I, so I I, I I made this up about my wife saying, well, he doesn't panic like, like astronauts. Maybe he'll be an astronaut. And then what's my retort to that? My retort is, I don't want to disappoint you, but... If he can't interpret the gas gauge on a Mazda, he's not getting in the space <laughs> shuttle, and that became my bit. and And I, I try it that night, and it kills. And
0: in the remaining moments, I have to obviously talk some sports with you. Yes, you, you played stickball, softball, handball growing up. You coached you forgot, little league.
1: You forgot horribly. Horribly and at the end of that. Yeah, no, not horribly, but very you,
0: averagely. You coached little league baseball with your brother for yeah. a, a while as well. How big were you into sports growing up?
1: Yeah, sports, uh, very big. Um, I, like I said, I wasn't I wasn't a stud, I wasn't great at everything, but I played everything and I was a little above average in everything. I would say my sport, I probably, probably you know, I, I did play baseball and then of course you get older, you used to play softball, but, but fast pitch softball, that was probably what I was best at. Basketball, I'm very average. My son couldn't beat me in basketball. And now, of course, I've graduated the golf. Uh, um, but sports was, you know, we didn't, you know, look. I'm not, I don't want to sound like grandpa, but you didn't have the videos and the things and the whatever. You had to go outside, and we went outside every day. I played basketball in the schoolyard every day. We played. Uh, I played played stickball with my friend Louis Ryle. Um, we had a perfect schoolyard stickball court. It was the little schoolyard and. And uh, there was a chimney that was a perfect home, you know, of course, you make the lines for home plate, the box. And that was perfect. And over the fence was a home run. And, you know, and I was always the Yankees, he was the Mets. And we were so into it. We would keep, like, a record. We would keep, like, okay, let's have a seven-game series, okay. And we would say, who's getting up? Like, he would, would, I would say, Horace Clark is getting up, you know and then i or i would say i'm pinch hitting for him i'm pitch, you know or we would take our pitcher out like i'd be a Mel Star, i'm taking him out and i would do warm ups for the new guy coming in yeah it was retarded <laughs> you know but we but what it are was did you do with your kids huh? yeah it was yeah. great it was great we loved it and you know i mean again i sound like grandpa you, you missed that i've missed that for my kids we, you know there's a lot of reasons why it doesn't happen you know where we live is different and everything but but sports was was everything yeah I did I I I mean it was it took up all my my recreational time with sports yeah
0: you mentioned big into golf today uh we're taping this on the Warner Brothers lot not far from Raymond was filmed but CBS ends up buying a golf membership for you to play at the course across the street from the lot how nice was that
1: yeah well that's not what got me into golf. I was obsessed with golf that's why they got it for me But yeah, that was a great little little present. Not a bad lunch, Perk. In year two, they bought me a membership at Lakeside, which is right across the street. And if you want to tell Perk, if you want to talk about Raymond Perk, um, the Masters is on CBS. And the day after the Masters, Monday, CBS, it's called Press Day. I don't know if you've ever been around there. Monday after the Masters, right? Yes. So CBS was allowed a foursome. Les Moonves, probably year, yeah, I guess year four, invited me, and I told I had to tell my wife, you know, now again we have three little four little kids then, and I'm occupied with the get with the show, and now I got to tell her Les Moonves is taking me on a golf trip, and she knows zero about any sport, and I have to explain to her what Augusta is like. (laughs) You know, how do you, what analogy can I use? I, you know, I, I, I told her, just imagine if someone invited you to Bon Jovi's house, okay? This is what it's like for me. Um, so there was no way I wasn't going. And we got to play on the day after. And Kevin James, too. Kevin James, I think the first year was me, but then Kevin James came for five years in a row. And I played the same tees, the same pins as, the, as what they played on Sunday. And my goal was to break 100. Just break 100 on exactly... What Ernie Els or, or VJ Singh just won the green jacket on, um, and I never did. I never broke a hundred. One hundred and two was the closest I came. But that was one of the best perks of being in show business on CBS. And then when it ended, when my show went off the air, never again. Were and you I, waiting for? Were you? No, of course I, I wasn't waiting. Call? Okay. I wasn't waiting for the invite because he has to use that okay, on, right. on the. But but I remember being in Atlanta a couple years later, and I'm saying, let me call everybody. I I called. Les, I called Phil Mickelson. I called Jim Nance, and and you know I'm not complaining about them. They tried. Ne- never played Augusta again. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's the way it should be. How was playing with Tiger? Tiger, I played with the my first year doing Pebble, first year ever invited, and um, and the following week was the Buick Open, and it was very significant because. The first year, I remember I got a lot of heat, a lot of negative press, well, not a lot. There was one article written about me in Sports Illustrated. I don't know, if, if, I know you're great with research. Did you, did you find this article? I'm, I'm not sure, uh, I'm maybe not. Do you know who Alan Shipnick is? Sure, golf writer. He wrote a scathing article about, about uh, not about me, but I was a lot in it about how, this is when Tiger was going for eight in a row, he was trying to beat Brian, uh, Byron Nelson's streak of winning tournaments, and he was argue, uh, saying how the celebrities in front were slowing down Tiger, and I was in front of Tiger that way. and my ball went on the beach once, and I said, all right, I'll, I'll pick it up, and my pro said, go, go get it, it'll be good television, which is, I think, what they said to the guy, the Agony of Defeat guy. Because it was, I went down and the tide came up and I had to run away and they all got it on camera. And it was hysterical. And then the, a week later, Alan, Alan Ship, or a couple of, Alan Shipnick's article came out about how Tiger was behind me and he he quoted Tiger he quoted what he's what Tiger was thinking. He said, when Tiger was asked, <laughs> when Tiger was asked, what do you think about what's going on in front of you? He said something like, well, you know, whatever, I just blah 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 blah. Because what Tiger was thinking was, and he put it in quotes, I'm, I'm chasing the ghost of Byron Nelson, and Ray freaking Romano was holding me up on every shot. And, it, you know, it, it wasn't, he was going, six and a half hour rounds. And, and, and Sports Illustrated let me write a rebuttal to him. Uh, and one of the things I said was, listen, I know there was six and a half hour rounds on Spyglass. There was six and a half hour rounds on Poppy Hill's. I know I'm bad, but I'm not bad enough to cause a delay on three other courses, you know, two other courses, um, but whatever. I have it hanging up. it's it's great. I have that article hanging up in, in, so you in like all... it. Well, I, at the time I was devastated, but now I, 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 it's funny now. it's just funny now because I don't know it's just it wasn't you know whatever.
0: you were on the show of Tigers former coach Hank Caney, um where he coached you on your yes. golf game. Uh, The Haney Project, Uh, best lesson you learned from that?
1: From Haney? From Uh Hank Haney? (laughs) I'll tell you, the funniest thing that happened was on one shot, and this is on camera, one shot that I hit, Hank Haney said, that's the worst shot I've ever seen. (laughs) And Hank Haney, of anybody in the world, has seen more shots, horrible shots, because he's a, think of all the coaching he's. And got. he had Barkley. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, but I love Hank Haney. He was, he was, he was great, and he was like a, like a, a drill sergeant. But I love him. I mean, I think uh, one of the best things he told me was, "Don't think about your score." And and he uses me in a in an example. He said when he gives um, when he gives golf speeches, he um, he uses my name as an example when he, when he gives seminars or whatever. Because on, on my, goal is, my lifelong goal is to break 80. I've never broken 80, I'm a 14 handicap. And I play by the books. I play every, I count every stroke. Very anal about everything. And I had, I was in the fairway at Lakeside Golf Course. And if I got on the green, I was about 100, 140 out. If I got on the green and two putted, I'd shoot 79. And I texted Hank Ainey from the, because I had just, about a year ago, I'd finished with him. And we wanted to break 80, we never got to it. I texted him. I said, if I get on and I two put 79. And then, of course, 10 minutes later, I texted him, took a seven, 82. And he uses that as an example when he gives speeches, motivations, of what not to do, what to, to be in your own head about your score and worried about uh, the number, you know? Just worry about performance.
0: Tell about the mind bets you play with yourself when it comes to golf.
1: Oh boy. Um, Yeah, I do mind bets to keep myself from gambling because I can get carried away gambling. I used to get carried away when I was younger. And thank God, before I made any money, I, 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 I took control of it. So now, what I do is I make mind bets instead of money bets. But they're the law. If I make a mind bet, in other words, if I say if I don't break a ninety, I can't watch TV tonight when I go to sleep, or for a week. People think, oh, that's silly. So just watch TV. I, I, you know, I, make, I swear to God, I do everything. I, I, if you, you can't get me to do it because too much karma, everything. I, 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 it's too much for me. So I don't do it. And I, and 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 I was, you know, it, 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 that got carried away. I remember going on the road with my buddy John Manfellati, uh, and we love to golf. And I told him, listen, when we go to Dallas, I can't golf for that week because of a So Don't bring your clubs because I can't golf.
0: Your, your wife says you, you'll um, do it. You, one of the things you can't watch TV when you're laying in bed. Oh, so yeah, you will yeah. literally sit in the well, chair at the front of the bed yeah. and watch TV. Yeah, but, whenever they
1: come in, whenever my kids or something come in, and I'm sitting in the, uh, the little lounge chair by my bed watching TV, they'll just go, what'd you shoot, Dad? What'd you shoot? Because they know I've lost a mind bed, so I can't get in the bed, but I found a loophole. I'll watch it in my little lounge chair.
0: Yeah,
1: it's, uh, but, you know, it keeps me from losing a
0: lot of money. The most satisfying moment from your career to date would be what?
1: Satisfying moment? Mm -hmm. I guess when Johnny... Carson, when I did Johnny Carson and I was a young comic and, and I, I was in my dressing room after and just, it was a blur, I didn't know what was going on, I didn't even know, I know it went well but it, it's, you don't even, you're, you're out of your body. And the door opened and Johnny came in and he just looked at me and he goes, you gotta be happy with that, you gotta be real happy with that. And Ed McMahon was right behind him and he says, really, really happy. Yeah, and that was just, you know, at that time were you just so much like, was I good, was I not good for Johnny to come in and do that? I mean, I, I would say that's up there. What? Thank you very much. <laughs> Fix that. Let's see you get a show out of that.
0: Thanks for listening to my chat with Ray Romano. Head over to YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger to watch Ray display his impressive world capital knowledge while we hang out on the Warner Brothers lot. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks again for listening.